Thank you for joining us for the Lafayette Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. Please join us each week as we listen to lessons given on Sunday mornings at the Lafayette Church of Christ. If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. When he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. Good morning, church. I'm uh, looking at that slide and wondering if I messed up some slides early this morning. So uh, if, if there's any mistakes this morning, that's on me, not any of the AP, AV people. So, uh, well, welcome to, uh, to worship with us here at, at Lafayette. Uh, if you're visiting with us, you're our welcome guest. And if you're uh, joining us online, hello to you as, as well. Uh, I, I know it's a, a fall break, so we have several of our um, teachers and, and folks out, but that also means some of the uh, college students are home, so uh, hello to some of you. Also, uh, Ethan and Emily have some, some family members here visiting with us for the first time, so we want to welcome them. Uh, the other man that looks exactly like Ethan is his brother, uh, so that's probably wasn't, wasn't going to be uh, hard to guess, and then his, uh, his pops there is, is next to Emily, so be sure to greet them this morning. Uh, also, one other thing before we uh, get in, this was not, I, I wasn't actually asked to announce this, but I feel the need as a lover of peppers to share this. Uh, but Daryl and Candy Simmons brought more peppers than you can imagine uh, to church this morning from, from their own garden. So we do have a, a garden theme this morning, and they have blessed everyone that they, they normally bless. You may not know about their uh, pepper and other vegetable ministry they have with bringing a lot of uh, homegrown veggies to many of our, our widows and such. Uh, but this morning they have an abundance of peppers, so even I get some today. Uh, so I, I already have my baggie. I got about a uh, half dozen uh, bell peppers, a half dozen uh, banana peppers, I think is, is the other type. So those are back there and there's baggies there. This is now one minute aside about peppers, um, but they're, they're really good and uh, you need to make sure we, we clean them out this morning. So. As, as you now know, uh, this, this morning, continuing with the, the garden theme, uh, we are working through the, the Gethsemane passage, and so our, our tone, I, I think understandably so, is uh, quite a bit more uh, contemplative and, and somber uh, than, than normal. But before we get into that a, a little bit further, uh, I do want to mention something uh, maybe a little bit more up, upbeat and joyful, that we are, are welcoming a new member into our family here at Lafayette. Uh, we're not doing the, the full uh, intro this morning because many of you uh, know her or, or know of her, uh, but we're excited to, to welcome Hallie Enix uh, into our Lafayette family. Hallie, you at least want to wave. Uh, she's, she's the one sitting over there by uh, Nathan. Uh, so Hallie Height, now Hallie Enix, uh, has, has been here at Lafayette on, on and off over the last few years uh, as she and, and Nathan were, were dating uh, and now that they are married, and, and Hallie is, is here in St. Louis, uh, she is placed in membership this morning. Hallie's originally from uh, Searcy, Arkansas, lived there, grew up there, didn't, didn't just go to school there. Uh, then she went to law school uh, in Nashville at Vanderbilt, which is a you know, terrible school. Um, <laughs> and she starts uh, this, this month, right, this week maybe even, 
at a, uh, is it this week or the following week or two weeks from now, uh, at a law firm here in St. Louis. I don't think we actually have any other practicing, uh, is it lawyers or lawyers? I don't know. That's one, one of the things where I'm not sure where my accent is from. So one of those people who practice law. Uh, say what? Just say attorney. Uh, attorney, yeah. <laughs> Hallie is now our only, our only practicing attorney here at Lafayette. So if, if you are... Uh, Someone who, who does get in trouble with the law regularly, um, you definitely need to, to go and meet Hallie this morning, but I would encourage uh, the rest of you to, to greet her and, and welcome her as well if you haven't. So we, uh, we know and, and uh, love and value uh, Nathan here, and we're excited to, to do uh, the same for Hallie. So let's go to God in, in prayer and, and pray a blessing over them and also transition into our, our passage. Dear God, we, we give you thanks and, and we give you praise for who you are and how you continue to move in our lives and in the lives of our families and in the lives of uh, this, this church family, God. We give thanks for Hallie and Nathan, and we play, pray a, a blessing over this young couple as they continue to, to grow and as they serve and, and are served by the body here at Lafayette. Father, we, we pray a blessing over the, the commitment Hallie is, is making to us this morning as our partner in the gospel and we pray a blessing over the commitment we are, are making to her as well. And God, as we, we contemplate a, a simple and familiar but a very difficult passage this morning, I pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that we will be able to, to contemplate and appreciate the, the suffering servant Jesus in a new light. And I pray that we might be comforted in our own times of hardship and struggle and doubt, and wrestling, because you are with us, and we know you are with us, because you came to us as God in the flesh, Emmanuel, Jesus, and you experienced our humanity. So thank you for this gospel message. Help us to hear this gospel, help us to share this gospel, and help us to live this gospel. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. It often feels like the anticipation of a thing is, is greater than the thing itself. When we are anticipating a, a great hardship on the one hand, or a great joy on the other hand, we are often filled with suffering and grief, or pain, or joy and happiness as we anticipate it and move toward the occasion itself. It seems like there was ten times as much news coverage leading up to Hurricane Ian uh, as there was coverage of the landfall itself. We, we love the anticipation sometimes more than the event itself. Uh, I think of students who are preparing for a test or who are preparing to, to write a paper and how that sense of, of dread and angst during the procrastination period often outweighs the actual hardship of just taking a test or, or writing a paper. And it often feels like the anticipation of a thing is, is greater than the thing itself. I think of all the, the movies with uh, battle or fight scenes that have really famous pre-battle or, or pre-fight speeches. The, the actual conflict uh, unfolds when the armies, armies clash together or when the, the two boxers begin to swap punches. But some of the most memorable scenes in these movies are not the battles themselves or the fights themselves, it's the, the pre-battle speeches. It's the, the pre-game speeches. 
I'm thinking of William Wallace in Braveheart exclaiming, they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. Uh, I don't even remember what happens after that scene. Uh, I don't remember anything about the battle. Uh, I think he just like rides his horse for another minute or so. Uh, It doesn't say anything. He's just galloping around. And then I presume there's a battle, but I don't even really remember the battle, but I remember the pre- the pre-fight speech. It's basically any speech that happens in, in the movie, Remember the Titans. I could care less about any of the, the cheesy football scenes, but I can't get enough of those unifying speeches before they take the field that bring the, the players together before uh, that metaphorical battle. It often feels like the anticipation of a thing is greater than the thing itself. And to give a a final and maybe a bit more positive example, uh, think about what what we call the holiday season. Uh, The singular day of Christmas for me often feels like a letdown. Uh, I get up too early, uh, I drink too much coffee, I eat too many sausage balls to the point that I look and feel like a sausage ball. (laughs) I open too many presents, I often don't even shower the whole day. And so that 24-hour period is not necessarily actually my my favorite 24-hour period of the year. But I love the holiday season. I love the prolonged season of festivities and, and cheerfulness often more than I love the day itself. I love the secular celebrations. I love the religious celebrations. I love when people argue about which one they want to do because I love both. I'm like, give me the secular, give me the religious. I love the holiday season more than the actual holidays themselves because it often feels like the anticipation of a thing is greater than the thing itself. And this similar train of of thought is what has helped me make sense of why this scene of, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane has played such a sizable role in our Christian imaginations. If you just read Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46, it doesn't pop out at you necessarily any more than many of the other scenes in Matthew's epilogue that are 8 or 10 or or 12 verses. And yet aside from the exact crucifixion scene itself and maybe the empty tomb, Jesus' suffering alone in the Garden of Gethsemane is a really, really big deal to us. Jesus' sense of sorrow and suffering seems to culminate in the garden when technically nothing bad has really even happened yet. Have you ever ever thought about that? He's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death and nothing has even gone poorly yet. It seems to culminate even more than it does later on in the epilogue when things don't go his way. And so at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus hasn't been betrayed by Judas quite yet. Jesus hasn't been denied by Peter quite yet. Jesus hasn't been deserted by the other apostles quite yet. Jesus hasn't been mocked or spit on or flogged quite yet. Jesus hasn't experienced crucifixion or God-forsakenness quite yet. But he seems to be suffering more in the Garden of Gethsemane as much or more than at those later points in the story. So I think perhaps Jesus would agree with the rest of us humans that the anticipation of a thing often feels greater than the thing itself. Jesus in the garden knows what is about to come his way. He is 
anticipating all these, these different forms of, of suffering. And he has a very human decision to make there while in the garden. He, he has to ask himself, am I going to carry through with what I myself have committed to, or am I going to give up this late in the game? Is there perhaps some other way to accomplish this mission, God? Must it be this way? I've come to see Jesus wrestling with his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane as the moment when the true battle was being fought. It's the pregame speech. It's the, the anticipation before the actual event itself that might even outweigh the event. Wrestling with God in prayer while your friends are asleep doesn't sound near as bad as being flogged or crucified. I also have a very low pain tolerance. Um, but it doesn't sound near as bad, right? Oh, my friends fell asleep, and I have to pray, and it's the middle of the night. It doesn't sound near as bad. But it's this scene that we often point to as the height of Jesus' suffering. This is Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. Have your Bibles or your Bible apps open. Uh, it looks like we do, do have the verses on the screen. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Pretty simple instructions. And then he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him into a deeper part of the garden. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You three stay here and keep watch with me. So Jesus deposits the, the rest of his followers some, somewhere else in the garden. And he continues on with Peter and, and James and John, his three closest spiritual companions. And he is, as we've already seen, he is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. His sense of sorrow and suffering reaches new heights in this moment of anticipation. He can barely handle the thought of what is to come. And so he needs to go to his father in prayer and he needs his friends to be praying alongside of him in, in private. And while he tends, intends for his own uh, prayers to be private, again, he asks his, his three closest spiritual companions to, to go over here and to keep watch. I don't think that keep watch means just watch out for any bad people, uh, but it's a more spiritual idea of keeping watch. Keep, keep a vigil. Keep watch. Pray. Fight off the darkness with the light of, of God. Keep watch for me. Verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Remember, he had just instituted the Lord's Supper, perhaps a connection we miss sometimes. May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Well, I have no doubt Jesus prayed more than those two sentences. I think those two sentences really encapsulate the, the different things Jesus is feeling in this moment. I think there's a, a sense of trepidation. God, God, I really don't actually want to do this. If there is, is some other way, let's find that other way. So there's that trepidation, but there's also a, a sense of, of faith and trust and even resignation, a holy resignation, yet not as I will, but as you will. Verse 40, and then he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Not keeping watch, not praying, but sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that 
you, not anything to do with himself, so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is the, the first instance of, of three uh, where Jesus is, is praying and he comes out and the apostles are uh, asleep. Uh, again, instead of praying, instead of keeping watch. And this first time he includes this line uh, that we sing, uh, one of the Devo kind of songs. Uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is, is weak. And if you read it in context, Jesus is actually directing those words at Peter. Uh, I think he's saying, Peter, your spirit is willing, perhaps. You, you want to be here for me. You want to pray with, with me. You want to be my friend. And yet your flesh is weak. You're, you're succumbing to, to the sleep. And yet I also think we, we oftentimes, I think this is appropriate as well, we more so apply this to Jesus, right? We, we look at Jesus and his wrestling here in this moment, and we say his spirit is, is willing. He, he wants to carry through with this divine plan, but his human flesh is weak, just like Peter's and James's and John's. So their bodies are succumbing to sleep, and his body is at risk of succumbing to, to sorrow. It's a very human uh, image of, of Jesus. So he knows what he needs to do, and he knows, I think, even what he wants to do uh, in his spirit, but his, his body is overwhelmed with sorrow. So he goes away a second time. He needs to pray a bit more, and, and he prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them, and he went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Next week, uh, minister couples and shepherd couples are going to be out on our annual retreat. Uh, so we won't be here, and Ethan Laster will be preaching, and, and he's going to unpack this, this next scene uh, for us, the next ten verses or so, which is really kind of part two of, of this, this message. But I want you to notice here in verse 45 how straightforward uh, Jesus seems to be. And we're going to see that in the passage next week that Ethan will be preaching, where he's wrestling and wrestling and wrestling in the garden, but as soon as Judas shows up, his decision has been made at, at that point. So look what he says in verse 45, very straightforward. Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of, of sinners. So he's wrestling, he's praying, he's asking God to, to take this cup away from him, and yet when the moment arrives, after his wrestling with God is done, he is now once again committed and focused on this, this plan previously laid out that the Son of Man would be betrayed by one of his own, and that he would be delivered into the hands of sinners. His, again, going back to the beginning, his actual suffering is all still to come, but it often feels like the anticipation of a thing, what he's going through here in the garden, is greater. It's of more weight than the thing itself. This scene of, of Jesus that I think we're pretty familiar with, so we're spending a little less time just doing... Uh, work in the text this morning. The, the scene of Jesus in the garden ha, has so captured our imaginations over the centuries that we have, if you didn't notice, many, uh, many songs that allude to Jesus' suffering in the garden. 
we don't have all that many, if any, songs about the other passages that we've looked at in this series. We don't have uh, really specific songs about the woman anointing Jesus with oil. Name the song. Okay, you don't know any. Uh, We don't have any songs about that. We really don't even have songs that make all that many reference to Judas betraying Jesus, or even Peter denying Jesus, or even Pilate questioning Jesus. But we have many Gethsemane songs. Because again, I think there's something about this scene that has captured our imaginations over the years. And while the, the, uh, as you saw this morning, the the very somber tones uh, lead us to not sing them too regularly, uh, one or two of these songs uh, may be very special to you and and may be a way that that you wrestle with this very human uh, depiction of, of Jesus. Nathan already shared that he He loves uh, the song In the Garden, which is kind of connected to this and then a couple of the other garden images. Uh, I actually requested of Mike that we sing that song, uh, Night with Eben Pinion, which for me growing up was a Sunday night song, you know. Uh, That was a Sunday, some of you don't even get that, right? But some of you get it. Uh, That was a Sunday night song, both because it was nighttime and because those were the strong Christians that could sing it without falling asleep. Um, So that was a a really... uh, that was a really in, important song for me. After you get through the Evan Pinion part, the lyrics are, are very, very beautiful. Um, so s- several of these hymns may mean something to you. As I was looking through them, uh, the one that really uh, struck me the most, uh, at least where I'm at kind of right now in my faith, is, is the hymn, uh, Tis Midnight and on Olive's Brow. That was the, the first hymn we sang this morning as we kind of lined several of them up. And there's something about the, the lyrics and the melody and the, the slow tempo that for me seem to really adequately capture what's going on in, in the garden. Uh, it captures the, the seriousness and the, and the sorrow and the, the darkness of, of that scene. It's, it's, it's as if that hymn somehow uh, transports me to Gethsemane where I'm there alongside of Peter and James and John trying to keep watch with Jesus or I'm there sort of seeing the, the suffering of, of Jesus. So I'm going to just go through these uh, stanzas pretty quickly. The, the first stanza uh, reads, "'Tis midnight and on olive's brow.'" That's just a fancy way to say on the Mount of Olives. "'Tis midnight and on olive's brow, "'the star is dimmed that lately shone.'" Of course, it's dark outside, so maybe that's one meaning, but I think this, this star is referring to Jesus, who is the light, and yet... In this moment, in this mysterious way, perhaps the, the star is dimmed a little bit. Tis midnight in the garden now, the suffering Savior prays alone. Second stanza, tis midnight and from all removed, we sing, the Savior wrestles lone with fears. In that disciple whom he loved, John, heeds not his Master's grief and tears. The Savior wrestles alone with his fears because he is removed from all of his companions. Even the disciple whom he loved, John, has fallen asleep on him. Even Peter and James are aloof to his grief and and to his tears. And so we get this, I think, very accurate depiction of the, the Savior, Emmanuel, wrestling alone with his fears. We're going to come back to that idea and then the third stanza, we're not going to do the last one. Uh, third stanza, tis midnight and for others guilt. 
The man of sorrows weeps in blood. That's a reference from one of the other accounts. Yet he that hath in anguish knelt is not forsaken by his God. Forsaken by everyone else, but not forsaken by his God. And so the first stanza tells us that the, the suffering Savior, the suffering servant, picture that idea from Isaiah, the suffering servant prays alone. Second stanza, that the Savior or Emmanuel wrestles alone with fears. And the third stanza, the, the man of sorrow weeps in, in blood. So this hymn writer is, is taking three really beautiful and rich titles for Jesus. This idea of Jesus as a, a suffering servant. And then in the second stanza, again, I said, we sing the Savior uh, wrestles alone with fears. The original hymn uh, has Emmanuel right there. It doesn't have the Savior. Maybe it just sounds better to say the Savior. But it has Emmanuel. So you got this idea in the first stanza, the suffering servant. That's from Isaiah. The second idea, Emmanuel. God is with us. God is with us is alone in the garden. And then the third stanza gives us this idea of, of the man of Sorrows, And all of these are connected to this idea of Jesus being alone and lonely there in the garden. So I think out of all the hymns we sing this morning, you probably would pick out maybe a different hymn and a different line. But of all the hymns and of all the beautiful lines with, within uh, these hymns, the one that has really struck a chord with me is, is this line, ironically, that, that we changed. Uh, I think it's the only one we changed. Uh, but this line, Emmanuel wrestles alone with fears. Just ponder how much meaning is, is packed into that statement. God with us had to wrestle alone with his own fears. And so while this is a, a somber passage this morning, and it's been kind of, a, a, again, a, an appropriately somber and contemplative morning of, of worship with some appropriately somber songs, Jesus in the garden is ultimately... Uh, a message of good news. There is a gospel message here in the garden. This line, God with us, wrestles alone with his own fears, is what leads us to a proclamation that we will never wrestle with our own fears by ourselves. That we might lose everyone else around us. We might lose our friends. We might lose our church family. We might lose our family. But there is no uh, human instance in which we wrestle with temptation, that we wrestle with our own sufferings, in which Jesus is, is not there with us. Because Emmanuel, God with us, experienced that uh, solo suffering. And so in this series, we're, we're kind of asking this question, and we're not hitting on it constantly, but we're asking this question, what, what kind of king do we serve? So we saw what kind of king Solomon was, and we kind of know what happens to all the other kings. But what kind of king do we serve? We we call Jesus King Jesus. What kind of king do we pledge our allegiance to? And what I get from the passage this morning is our king is, is one who gave up all the, the glories and the comforts and the joys of heaven to stoop down to this lowly of a place. Matthew 26, 36 to 46. You're the God of the universe and all that comes with that that I'm not privy to. But you have all that going for you and you stoop down to this lowly human moment. I think of a king who is the suffering servant and is being demeaned to the point of praying alone while his friends fall asleep. I think of a king who is also known as Emmanuel, God with us. A king known as the man of 
sorrows, weeping and blood, kneeling in anguish. And so the, the good news of this morning's message is that we don't serve, we don't pledge allegiance to a, a high king who is above and beyond the experiences of us lowly people. That's how kings tend to operate. That's how presidents and emperors and uh, sometimes like middle managers tend to, tend to operate. Uh, that they are above and beyond the experiences of lowly people. Uh, our king, rather, is, is our king because he experienced and suffered through and endured everything that we could possibly have to experience and suffer through and endure. So the story of how God becomes king is a story of a king uh, lowering himself to the point of just being a member of his kingdom. Uh, We're going to wrap up by by reading from Hebrews chapter 2. There's several verses, actually a lot of the book of Hebrews hits on this idea. Uh, It's very concerned with Jesus' humanity and how Jesus' humanity is essential to our salvation. Uh, but these verses from, uh, from Hebrews chapter 2 really drive home this point. It's using priestly language more than the royal language, but see if you can see the connection. Verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. That's us. For this reason, he had to be made like them. That's what Jesus is doing in the garden. He had to be made like them, fully human in every way. Loneliness, tears, grief, abandonment. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so what I get from this is especially verse verse 18, uh, that we serve a king, we serve a Christ, a Messiah, who is able to now help us when we are suffering and, and we are tempted. And so I don't presume this morning to know uh, exactly what you all are, are facing this morning. I know some of what you are facing, but not all of what you are facing. And you know some of what I'm facing, but you don't know all of what I'm facing. And that's the case for, for all of us. Regardless, verse 18 promises that Christ is the one and the only one who is able to help us. He can help us in our own temptations, in our own sufferings, Because he himself was tempted. He himself suffered. He himself shared in our humanity. He himself became fully human in every way. And where do we see such humanity as clearly as we do in the Garden of Gethsemane? Let's pray. Lord, hear the the prayers uh, of our hearts this morning. Hear the prayers of your people. Lord, as we we wrestle with you and as we wrestle with our own fears, 
our own temptations, our own struggles, as we wrestle with our own humanity, may we remember, each and every single one of us, that we are not wrestling alone because you are with us. You are Emmanuel. And it's in his name that we can approach your throne of grace with confidence. Amen. Jack, can